Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Cricket with an Accent. I'm Sakib Ali hosting the show and today I have uh, the extreme pleasure of hosting one of uh, mine, everyone's favorite cricket writer. George uh, Abel has taken time out uh, during a busy series when he's actually not on site covering it from UK, so managing time zones and whatnot. So I feel really uh, humble that you know he, he's giving his time here. So on that note, let me bring in my guest. Welcome to the show, George. Thank you. That's a very, very flattering start. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you very much for asking me. No, I mean, it, it, is, it is a reality. I'm a, a very serious hobbyist. I don't make money off it. And then when I get you know, introduced to professionals like you and who are kind enough to come, I think that's a, that's, a real, that's a real introduction. I mean, our worlds are different, but I'll try to not waste your time and make it worth a listening experience for my listeners here. So basic start here. Uh, we all know your writing. Uh, have been reading about it, uh, you know, what you uh, write in Crick Info and other platforms. Uh, standard question for my guests. What is your association with the game? How far you go back? And did you ever envision covering it professionally? Um, well, I, I, I don't know. I fell in love with it pretty young. Um, I don't know how old I was, but I was, uh, I mean, tiny. I don't really remember a time before cricket. Um and no, I didn't mean to do it at all uh, as a living. Um, I was an unsuccessful musician, uh, tremendously unsuccessful. <laughs> and um, I wrote a piece one day for the cricketer and um, they paid me, I think it was £150. And at the time I was earning a lot less than that. Um, I was working at Ronnie Scott's uh, club and I was earning, I think, £2.91 an hour. Um, and working from 4 p.m. to 4 a.m. each day. So you didn't have to be a genius to work out that writing nonsense about cricket paid a little bit better, although, you know, very often it didn't. So um, I started to pursue it uh, more, and I don't know, really. I kept on getting opportunities. I've been terribly lucky, um, because if I'd started a couple of years later, none of those would have been out there. But um, yeah, I, I feel I've overachieved, really, given my tremendously modest level of talent. But uh, it, it's, um, yeah, I, I feel very lucky, really, because honestly, it very rarely feels like a job. Yeah, no, I, I mean, perspective is key, but I'm sure your readership, if they tune in and my listenership, no, this is a little far from the truth. You are really good at what you do. And no, no, all... no, 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 no. I'm not being falsely modest. I, 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 no, I'm really comfortable with um, being honest about this because, well, there's a couple of things. Because I've done this for 20-odd years or whatever, and for every bit of half of it, I have been quite an unsuccessful cricket journalist. So I've been, you know, I've had a really good run in the last few years. But I look around the press box and very often... Uh, I'm surrounded by people who are a lot more talented. You know, I sat next to Jared for years or or various people. I could say Vidush and Antaraja now or uh, Johnny Lou or uh, various people. And um, and that's okay because I very much uh, know that I have to work a bit harder and do things a bit differently. So uh, knowing that, being reminded of that, knowing how rubbish it is to not earn enough money to really do it properly and um it is tremendously motivating so i i'm i'm pretty comfortable with my um 
uh, you know, relatively meagre um, attributes. But, uh, you know, what are you going to do? I, I've, I've been very lucky. I, I can't give the money back. I mean, I'm having a lovely time. <laughs> No, absolutely. Like I said this to Bharat Sundaresan when he came to my podcast last year. I said, you know, some of us, you know, do podcasts or, you know, do blogs as a hobby. And, you know, the real deal, you know, guys like you, you travel and cover the game professionally. But but that being said, one of my friends was excited when I shared the news that you are uh, going to be a guest in the podcast and he called you a purist. Now, does the word purist, what does that even mean to you? I mean, uh, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> uh, have you reinvented your writing style over the years? If uh, purist still doesn't mean anything, I mean... How, well, I don't was... know what it means. I, I genuinely <laughs> don't know what it means. I mean, it might be used to mean that you're someone who prefers the longer form of the game, which I don't necessarily. I like it all. That's probably um, an accurate assumption, yeah. You see, I, I, don't, uh, I, I don't really like snobbiness when it comes to cricket. But, but it um, meant as a compliment. I would sort of oh, no, 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 Lord, yeah. <laughs> I'll take every compliment. No, but I mean, uh, generally, I wouldn't see myself as a purist, but um, it might mean that I write long-form pieces, but I also write short-form and do nonsense video and, you know. So, I mean, one of the things that I've learned you have to do, and this is a really um, serious point to anyone who's interested in doing it for a living, is you've got to be adaptable. Uh, you have to write over the course of a career and sometimes even over the course of a day to so many different audiences. And that's one of the great things about working at Crick Info is that it's a lot of audio, a lot of video, um, quite a lot of sort of magazine style pieces. And obviously you get to do the long written through piece as well. And they're all challenging in different ways. I just remember the first tour I did, which I think was um, with this job anyway, was to the UAE, England, Pakistan, 2012. And I felt almost every day that there was something I couldn't do. Um, and while that was daunting, I also found it quite exciting. And after you've been challenged a few times, you kind of back yourself to find a way to do it. And then later I learned to do video editing, which was a real game changer for me. And the great thing about that was you're not reliant on anyone else's opinion or sense of humor when you're doing some of the videoing. So mm-hmm. on an Ashes tour, for example, by the time anyone in England wakes up, I've already put my videos together. I've edited them exactly how I like them. And, um, you know, some of them work, some of them don't. But being able to have that sort of level of control and being able to have a variety, I suppose, of different skills, uh, it, I don't know, it just has it's kept me employed, I think, it's, you know, for a bit longer than might have been the case. And long may it continue. No, I think the key word there is adaptability, be it, I, I think, in your uh, experience, cricket writing or coverage as a journalist or, uh, or the modern cricketers who try to uh, juggle three formats. So that brings me to the first question here, which is, again, uh, it's a little late, but I think we still have to acknowledge the first test. So where do you rank mm-hmm. that performance from the English team? And if you look at the last decade, they've had two other wins in India. So in terms of uh, whatever could be the relevant context, given how strong India is at home, they have a deep bench. It was a Chennai. Uh, of course, we have Joe Root, who's easily or arguably the best player of spin in the world, along with Kohli and Pujara. So where do you rank that win once now the dust has settled and we are almost at the eve of the second test? Well, that is a good question. Uh, very high, very high. But all I would say is that I thought winning the toss 
uh, provided a disproportionate advantage to England. Uh, and that's, that's fine. You've got to take the advantages when they come. But I don't think that's a really good test wicket where that's the case. They won the, t- uh, the toss last time, by the way, very similar wicket in 2016 and still lost by the innings. So I thought it was good that they'd learned. Um, so I, I'm not sure I would put it quite as high as the 2012 win in Mumbai. And I'm not sure I put it quite as high as the 2010 win in Adelaide. But, you know, uh, you would have to put it enormously high uh, because pretty much everyone contributed, uh, because India are very strong, because they did it in lots of different ways with the seamers striking the new ball, the reverse swing later, the spinners took some wickets. You know, I I, I would want to give unstinting praise, really. It it was a terrific uh, performance. And you know what? It sets the series up. I was a little bit worried that it might become... Uh, very one-sided and you know whatever happens in the next couple of weeks now it's 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 going to be relatively even isn't it no it it is definitely it's it's set the series up again as good as England is India I think is the toughest touring assignment I think or as tough as it's been uh, for any visiting team and given the English bowling especially Dom Bess I didn't want to bring him right in the conversation so that also magnifies, I think, the huge margin, in my view, of the Englishman because they really didn't have a world-class spinners going at it. And still, you know, with whatever we've seen, uh, the full tosses and the bowlers yeah. went for runs, but they still got the better of the Kohli's, the Pujaras, and and especially in the first innings. Second innings is a different story when both teams were struggling. So, again, add context with the English bowling against this Indian batting, and if you may want to elaborate there. I thought that uh, England had the best left-arm spinner in the match. Uh, so, I, I, you know, it would have been, well, it might have been different if Judeja had been playing. That turned out to be a colossal loss, didn't it? Um, but, <clears throat> yeah, to, I thought Joe Root deserves even more praise maybe than he's getting because those spinners are terrifically difficult to captain, particularly Don Bess. I think he bowled 19 full tosses. Uh, and that over, which everyone will remember, where he bowled three in a row to um, Vera, there was a long hop in there as well. And you're at the stage there, so you've got four balls, which, which are very, very poor. Um, I mean, you could really count the number of full tosses. I, I, I swear Graham Swoboda got a year without bowling three full tosses and a, and a long hop. Um, so to, to captain someone like that, and I think he took five wickets in the game, uh, you know, it's really, really challenging. Uh, and they had to obviously use the seamers maybe a bit more than they might have anticipated. Um, but I thought I thought Leach is a pretty good bowler. I know he was taken down by Pant for a while, but that can happen, can't it? I once saw Shane Warne hit for three successive sixes, you know, in county cricket by a guy who I, I suspect quite a lot of your listeners would have heard of, a guy called Graham Wagg. So, you know, these things happen. Um, and I thought that we probably have to acknowledge, as well as the toss, the fact that I thought India batted quite poorly, if I'm honest. Um, the preparation hasn't been perfect for anyone, has it? And there were some some looser shots than you would expect. I suspect that now, having had you know a bit longer to prepare, having uh, acclimatised again, and also having had a bit of a kick up the bum, they will be they will sell their wickets 
a lot more dearly in the second test. No, indeed. I think, like I said, uh, not at the peril of repeating myself, this is, I think, not a wake-up call, but I think India is going to come down hard, and that's what makes the second test even more interesting. So let me ask you a very generic question. Uh, I'm a big tennis fan, too, and uh, uh, in the late 80s and 90s, some of the East European players struggled in the humid and hot conditions of New York at the U.S. Open. And uh, as I also recall, some of the touring English teams in the past have struggled in Chennai and coaching some of the, you know, not melting pots, but some really hot conditions. So yeah. leave the cricket skill apart. How impressed are you with this modern day English outfit that they can be competitive in India? Because, you know, weather is a big key, I think. And we, we, can't, uh, yeah. we can't discount that. So do you want to bring IPO familiarity? Uh, by playing in the country so well, often? Uh, how do you want to unpack well, there it? They're a lot more professional than they used to be. Uh, I think that the English teams that I grew up watching were full of quite a lot of chubby little fellas who, um, you know, they're very good cricketers, but they, what do I mean? They're very good at refueling. I mean, you, you don't see cricketers who look like Mike Gattin or Ian David Botham Bourne. even for, for a lot of his career. Um, yeah. And uh, that has, well, it hasn't completely gone out of the game, but it has largely, hasn't it? Um, the, the thing is, India's not as hot as one or two other places. And it's probably not as humid even as Sri Lanka. I mean, it is hugely demanding. And the conditions are so different in terms of the pitches to what you would ever see in England. Uh, it's always going to be difficult. But they probably prepare for it a bit better than they used to. And they probably are a bit better in terms of their attitude in not making excuses. You know, there, there is pretty much a culture on this side of not making excuses. I, I'm full of admiration for all these cricket teams around the world who are spending so many weeks and months in bubbles. I had a wee bit of a taste of that in the last English summer, and it is rubbish. Um, and you're not hearing a peep out of them, are you? You're not hearing a word of complaint. And I really admire that. And it's not just England. Obviously, India are having to, to live a similar life and did in Australia and West Indies seem to have been in a bubble for absolutely months. So, you know, uh, very interesting to compare that to other sports uh, because I reckon the tennis players in Australia have been in a bubble for about 20 minutes before they started whining. <laughs> so uh, I, I really admire that. Um, this particular England side have really embraced uh, extra fitness, nutrition, um, just being more healthy in lots of different ways, mental health as well. So I, I think it's all part of the game's progression towards professionalism. And of course, Indian conditions have become more familiar because lots of people have played now in the IPL. I think it's probably now seen as a, a much more important tour than it was in the 80s and 90s, you know, partly because of the finance, partly because of the attention, um, and partly, to be fair, because um, India are probably the best side of the world right now, aren't they? And that's what, that's what the bar is. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I, I expect them to be very fit at this stage, to be fair. But you're right, it's, it's one of the many things that is useful about being on the ground or at the ground. Um, <laughs> and one of the things that's very important, one of the reasons it's important to keep playing, um, I mean, I'm getting to a stage where I, I very, very rarely play, but I 
fielded in a twenty a T twenty not so long ago, and I found it exhausting. And I finished it covered with abrasions and cuts and bruises and all sorts of things. Um, imagine doing it for 190 overs. Uh, so it's always very useful if you're sitting in a press box to go and sit or stand outside for a while uh, and realize how life is without the air conditioning. Uh, what they go through, what they all go through, all sides, is utterly brutal. But you kind of know what's coming at this stage. And um, I've never been as hot as I've been in Perth, in Australia. Um, so, uh, yeah, you can't make excuses. That's that's part of the, the beauty of touring, isn't it? And I promise you, whatever, however tough it is, it's better than being in England right now. It was minus 25 in Scotland last night, you know. Um, if the COVID doesn't get us, the bloody polar bears will, or frostbite or something. So I don't think you'll get too many complaints from anyone about um, having a period in the sun right now. No, I, I mean, presumably, presumably it's pretty freezing in Boston, isn't it? Yeah, we, we, we've been covered with snow. We've been getting hit every other day with uh, maybe a few inches here and there. So, yeah, it's not a pleasant sight. <laughs> Unless you like skiing and all that stuff. But, yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm done with snow. <laughs> so, no, I think uh, your response uh, definitely paved the next question here. I think the, the mental health and COVID bubbles, and then that's a big reason for the rotation policy. But it's also yeah. a very polarizing discussion if you're an English cricket fan that, like you said, you are playing the best cricket team in their own den. Why tinker with a winning formula? What is the priority pipeline here? So with the second test starting in maybe less than 12 hours, a lot of people are not happy if there's going to be changes. Like there's already... I think you wrote about this, that Broad may come in for Anderson. So talk about those changes and how realistic those changes are with well, COVID. There's going to be, there's going to be a few changes yeah. uh, because uh, Jofra is out as well, I'm afraid. Um, Jofra is injured. Um, and, yeah, Joss Butler has gone home. And originally they wanted to swap uh, James Anderson with Stuart Broad. Now, that's not just about... Uh, mental health or anything that's about the fact that they play back-to-back tests and these guys are in their mid to even late 30s and they wanted to keep them fit and fresh for as long as possible also broad and anderson do a similar job don't they in in these conditions similar job in that they'll bowl extremely dry and they've got quite nice variety of skills which could also be useful but they probably need someone like joffra at the other end to offer a slightly different threat. And I know he didn't take loads of wickets, but I thought Joffre struck with the new ball in the first innings. And he, he, I mean, Ravi Ashwin was very brave, but he did rough him up a bit. Uh, And that's something that England haven't always had. So that's quite a useful weapon, I think. In terms of uh, the priorities, would they have rested people, rotated them in the same way in an Ashes series? Well, we'll see. Uh, there isn't a lot of evidence of them ever having done that before. Um, but I do applaud them, really, for learning from previous mistakes. The England team that lost the Ashes in Australia in thirteen fourteen was absolutely annihilated. And by the time they came home, lots of them, several of them, were on antidepressants. And, and, the, and the team just... It had been a terribly successful England team. Now, people might um, argue with that. But by English cricket standards, that is an incredibly successful team. 
Uh, and it didn't last very long. And part of the reason it didn't last very long, I think, is because they were hot housed. You know, Graham Swan was forced to bowl so many overs that his elbow gave in. Um, they fell out with each other as well, didn't they? Uh, Jonathan Trott obviously had his uh, mental health troubles, uh, partly again because I think of the high pressure environment in which they were playing. And I think they've learned from that. Uh, and to be honest, I really applaud them saying to someone like Joss Butler, who is playing all three formats and um, is clearly very committed to the cause, to, to preemptively say, um, take a rest, go home for a couple of weeks, spend some family time. Because I say to you again, living in a bubble is not particularly healthy, uh, not a lot of fun. And these guys, you don't just want them fit physically, you want them fit and fresh mentally. And there's so many games, eh? There's so many games that something has to give. Uh, particularly in the case with Butler, I would argue that England's strength in depth is such that he's not a massive loss. I mean, I think personally, I would have been playing Ben Folks ahead of him anyway. I really would. And I've probably been proved wrong. But Ben Folks is a better wicketkeeper. Um, he has a higher batting average in first class and test cricket. So, you know, people getting worried about that, to know, to know that it's a huge problem. In terms of rest and rotation during the rest of the series, well, am I not right in saying that Stark started well in the series against India in Australia and his figures deteriorated the more he played because he became worn out? So I would have thought that it's not a, a case of taking India lightly. It's just a reflection of the relentless schedule these teams have. And um, England have tried to prioritise strength in depth and think that they can rotate without losing any quality in the team. Now, we will see, won't we? We will see whether Anderson can do the same job. We will see whether maybe Ollie Stone could come in for Jofra, maybe Chris Wokes will, whether they can do a sim uh, as good a job. It's a big ask, isn't it? But I, I, I see why they're doing it. And I actually mm -hmm. quite applaud it because you, you can see fast bowlers. They keep going. It may be imperceptible what, what they lose, but they lose kind of one, two, five percent here and there. And over the course of a series, I think that can be really quite important. No, I think is this, I mean, Jafra has been pretty, I think, open about this since the IPL that, you know, living in the bubble is not easy. And I think it's more and more evident. So is this something triggered by player reactions or is this something the management realized pretty soon, okay, for the long-term maintenance, for the busy schedule and these bubbles factored in? So who's driving this conversation? Maybe this could be a good learning experience for every team because there are very few Pujaras out there that only play one format. Most of these yeah. world-class cricketers are playing every day. Virat Kohli took a little break earlier in, the, in, in 2020. So who's driving this conversation? Is it a player agenda or is it like the management coming on the same page? It's a good question. I think probably originally it starts with players, the players union, which is a bit of an issue, obviously, in India, um, and the players agents. The players are hugely powerful uh, and they are quite well looked after by their representatives. And at England level, they're quite looked at, well looked after by the union. So I think that they will be um, passing on those concerns. Equally, you, you see, you could argue that English cricket obviously has been hit very badly financially by COVID. Everywhere has been. Uh, uh, and England's top players have not felt the brunt of it financially like many other people have. But at the same time, 
they are the ones who are keeping everything afloat because they are playing nearly all the time. You know, they got the whole English uh, schedule in in the last season, which was remarkable, really. And uh, by doing so, they kept the game afloat financially. So uh, I think there's some give and take. I think they, the um, the management is quite smart right right now. And of course, they've been players. Ashley Giles has has been a player. He has struggled himself with the uh, highs and lows of uh, a life in the spotlight. Uh, and I think he's quite sensible. I think he's got. Um, I think he has excellent perspective, as you would expect from someone. Well, we don't have to go into his background, but you, you'll you'll know that he has had good days and bad days. You'll know his wife has been uh, very unwell at times over the years. He, he's got children. That's a man with a sense of perspective. Um, and he will know that the more important thing is to look after the players. And also, I think if you look after the players, you probably have their loyalty as a longer term thing. Uh, th- th- these are very, very important assets, aren't they? And uh, they maybe haven't always been made to feel that way. So I think when these things work well, the union, the management, the players, they're sort of working hand in hand. And that relationship right now seems quite good. It seems quite trusting because they know that they've been asked to do something that's a bit rubbish, but they also know that they've been looked after a bit. Uh, and yeah, I, I haven't heard many. <laughs> it's funny because I've got a story half written on my laptop. Um which is completely contradicting what I'm saying. But I, I haven't heard many complaints. I think there is a player within the current squad, who I won't name if that's all right, but who, who is a bit fed up. But I think part of the deal was that if they're struggling, they can go and see the coach and say, look, I think I need some time out, and they'll be able to go home without any repercussions. Um, I think a few years ago when Trotty, bless him, was struggling in Australia, he didn't really feel he could tell anyone, and that could be that could be when things get unhealthy and even dangerous. No, we all remember he was in a dark place, and uh, I guess uh, you know this is this is the way the game should be because uh, players' health, like you said, emotional health is also key. And I'm on the same page. You you more than convinced me that this method is you know is, these steps more than method are there to restore the well, overall picture. See. Let's see. I mean, if they if they lose this series three one, and Ben Folks has a shocker, then we'll reflect on it maybe a wee bit differently. But I, I, I said honestly, I would have been picking him ahead of Joss Butler anyway. Hmm. Um, and by most metrics, he is actually the better player. So um, he's he's just not as eye catching a player. But you know, do you want your keepers eye catching? Um, anyway, uh, we'll see. It's brave, and. You know, as someone who's written about the importance of respecting mental health for a while, I don't feel I could criticise them now that they start doing it. I don't think there'll ever be a perfect time to start to start resting people. And, and of course, the elephant in the room is probably the IPL, because they will go and play the IPL. They will be rested from England duty and play the IPL. And I know that doesn't sit right with some people, but it's the pragmatic thing to do, I think. No, I mean, you wrote a wonderful piece and my plan was to bring this at the end and I still will do that, uh, go back to your article. Uh, but going back to Butler and folks, it's a pretty similar situation in, with Pant and Saha. But in this case, Butler is Pant and folks is Saha, the better glove man. So educate my listeners here who really don't know, or some of them who may not know much about 
folks, some probably will do. So what happens if uh, the counter argument, if folks has a blind of a series, what does this do to Joss Butler's test credential? I mean, because this is a key series. If you please, an instrumental yeah. in the success, what happens next? <laughs> well, it doesn't seem to matter. Um, ben Folks has an extraordinary record. I mean, Ben Folks scored a century on test debut in Gaul, I think it was, um, but certainly in Sri Lanka. And um, yeah, it was in Gaul. And then he took a, a catch, I think, with his second ball as keeper. And then he completed a stumping almost immediately. So he play, he has played one full test series for England and he was player of the series. Uh, and he has also played, incidentally, one ODI for England and he was player of the match and, and was dropped. So he's a very unfortunate fellow to be playing in the time of Butler. But he has a test batting average of 41, admittedly in a small sample size of, I think it's five games, whereas Butler's is about 34. And he has a first-class batting average of 38, 39, and Butler's is about 33. And that's over a much longer sample size. So I don't think anyone, I don't even think Joss Butler's mum would dispute that Ben Folks is a better keeper. And I would argue that the uh, stats suggest he is, well, he's a different batsman. He's a much more conventional batsman. Uh, but he might well be a good option for this tour because um, he, he keeps very well standing up, which Joss hasn't, to be fair, although he's done very well on this tour. But historically, he's really struggled against the spinners. And Ben Folks can also play spin very well. So I think he's a terrific cricketer. I really do. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, in Sri Lanka, he was brilliant. So they, they went from Sri Lanka to the West Indies. And after two tests in the Caribbean, England w- w- lost them. And they, uh, so they were 2-0 they were down. And they made a change because they wanted to strengthen the batting. And they brought Keaton Jennings in as an extra top-order bat. They gave Johnny Bairstow the gloves, put him back down to seven from three, and Ben Folks was the man who was squeezed out. So it was no reflection of his own performances. It was just the balance of the team. And I'm afraid he carried the can for other people's failures. That was that period when England kept getting bowled out very cheaply, you know, under Trevor Bayliss. And, um, yeah, they just couldn't find room for him. But I really don't think it was a reflection on his, on his form. I think he's terrific. Hmm. No, it's quite to quite to ponder there once again. So the other parallel conversation here is the World Test Championship, and England and India are literally, you know, the the game is on their racket. They both can get there and play New Zealand, while Australia doesn't have a say. They depend on certain equations that may go their way. So let's bring the purest angle back here. And you said, okay, and and also keep IPL out of the way right now. The players may choose to play IPL. That's understandable. We'll talk about that. But uh, if and you said quality is not compromised, but if some fans feel like you know they lose from here and there was a chance to play World uh, Test Championship, where does that sit with the English priorities right now? Because for long, they have been seen the guardians of the long format of the game. They have gone along with the modernization. So uh, is there an angle worth exploring here? I understand you've spoken a lot about mental health and you know, a long year, but where does this all sit with the World Test Championship? I think that they won't admit it, but I think they've probably given up on the World Test Championship. You know, bearing in mind that before the Sri Lanka tour, they pretty much needed snookers to, to qualify. 
Uh, and, and they still do, really. I mean, they have to go to India and, and not just win, but win handsomely. Yeah? Uh, I mean, I think it has to be 3-0 or something, doesn't it, for them to win. So I don't really see that as very likely at all. I mean, I think it would be a miracle, to be honest. Um, the other thing is, I don't know how much the World Test Championship captured the imagination of the UK audience. I, I don't think it did. Um, I don't personally care about it very much for various reasons. I mean, one, it's not a level playing field. Two, it's almost incomprehensibly complicated. Um, and three, I don't really like playing, you know, a, play, a, a, a one-off final that could be basically decided on the toss of a coin if, if the conditions are, are such. I, I don't know. Does that really tell us who the best test team is? If England, uh, I, it, it, I mean, it could be okay. New Zealand, say it's New Zealand beat India, and it's at Lords, which it might well not be. But do you remember the last time India played at Lords? They lost the toss. They bowled out by Chris Wokes, I think it was, wasn't it? They didn't really have a chance. That was another game decided disproportionately on the toss of a coin. I don't know. I think the World Test Championship needs looking at again. I get the context thing. Uh, it was never for me because I always liked cricket anyway. Uh, so it's probably not one that I'm particularly well qualified to talk about, but it doesn't seem to me that it's worked. And um, I mean, I have made this point again uh, before. It seems a bit uh, facile because I don't think it's terribly likely, but I, I believe in divisions and I like promotion and relegation. The benefit of that being that most teams have something to play for most of the time. It's not just about the top two or three right now. If you were Bangladesh or West Indies or whatever, you would also have something to play for, whether it be promotion from Division 2 to Division 1 or to try to avoid relegation. And it needn't be something that uh, is hugely important financially, uh, but I think it would be difficult to get everyone to sign up for that because uh, I think there would be stigma involved and I... I, for, for all the obvious reasons that you can think of. But I think that would actually um, provide extra context for everybody, some motivation. I think it would be very easy to understand and it needn't get in the way of bilateral series. You know, it's, you don't have to be a genius to find ways around it. Hmm. So I, I don't know, you, you tell me. I mean, are, are you particularly uh, excited by the World Test Championship? I mean, for the longest time before it was conceived in the manner it's going on, I was a fan, but uh, the first edition seems ultra confusing. And I don't even know a lot of people understand, you know, how a team will get there and the the ground rules will change uh, after COVID. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm on the same page, but uh, but you can't have a best of three final as well. And you're right. I mean, the toss is such a huge indicator of what, you know, can happen. Uh, let, let's see, but 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 I, I think I'm on the same page that this may not survive. With you know, especially to, to be a... fair, we, we're probably we have to acknowledge anyway that playing it during COVID has been tricky, so it, it hasn't maybe had a, a fair chance to show itself in its best light. Um, but I, I would be surprised if it survives in the same format going forward. Yeah, it's it's a tough sell because just adding the World Championship, you know, to how cricket calendar works for different countries, it's not even, it's not even even. It's a hard sell. You're right. 
so of course, uh, we, we'll talk more about the Red Bull, but I want to bring in Joe Root here. There are battles within the battles. I mean, him scoring these three centuries uh, to in Sri Lanka and uh, you know now in Chennai. Uh, uh, what kind of a problem he poses to the Indian lineup here? Do you uh, suspect India may bring in like Siraj instead of a spinner? Because it looks like Root's not being troubled by by the spinners, and there's no Jadeja again. So, uh, what changes do you anticipate from the Indian lineup uh, for the second test? Race? I think I think Ax Patel is uh, available again. So, I mean, that is one area that India struggled in the in the first test. Um, there are various ways they could go, but it looks from a couple of photos we've seen of the pitch and the uh, the conversation we've had so far that India are going to gamble, I would say, on a pitch that will turn more and turn earlier and turn quicker. Now, that is intriguing. Uh, because I think it's the mistake they made in 2012. They absolutely thumped England in the fir- first test in Ahmedabad. And then they went to Mumbai. And instead of just trying to beat them, they prepared a pitch that turned early. And it brought England's spinners into the game more. Now, for all their faults, uh, Jack Leach can bowl quite well on a turning wicket. And I think Moen Ali can too. So... I think it's a risk. Having said that, you know, you always have to remember when batsmen are in incredible form and they they look dauntingly difficult to remove, that they are human and they will make mistakes. I mean, we do know that. And there were moments when things could have gone wrong during the course of this incredible uh, three-test run that Joe is having. Look, he's been playing on some very, very flat wickets. And um, in Sri Lanka, he was up against... Uh, one bowler, really, who who was excellent, Embledinia, the left-arm spinner, and, and the rest of the attack was, by test standards, really quite modest. While this India attack is is far, far better, obviously, he, he did take advantage of the pitch at its flattest and easiest, and there will be days when he is made to work much, much harder for his runs. But I'm not sure that going with a sharply turning wicket. I don't know. It feels like a mm. risk to me. Uh, but it looks like that's the way they're going. Yeah. Yeah, we, we'll find out soon. Uh, again, in India, I'm sure you follow the fortunes of Indian cricket. Our, our fans are, you know, we are, we are hard on our team. And for the, for the longest time, Ravi Shastri was getting the stick for the fans. And now with the, becoming the second only coach to win two series in Australia, I think his, his CV has just like skyrocketed. So let's do, do a comparison. Uh, has the English batting transformed or their approach during uh, the years of uh, Silverwood? Uh, your, your view oh, yeah. of that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, he's come in. I mean, it sounds so blooming obvious, though. Uh, he's basically come in and said, big first inning runs. That's important. I'll let you into a little secret. I, I mean, I probably shouldn't say this sort of thing, but I got a text yesterday morning from Trevor Bayliss. Who are, of whom I was quite critical, but actually we got on terribly well socially. I mean, I really like him. Uh, and he sent me a text yesterday morning, basically taking the piss out of me. I can't remember what I'd said. He said something like, how are you? And I would have said something like, it's bloody cold and everyone's got COVID. And he texted back something along the lines of, you've got to be more positive, which is basically what I say when I'm doing the impression of him. Uh, and it just made me laugh uh, because... Um, 
I don't know. He was a delightful man. And he look, he took England from, do you remember how bad they were at the 2015 World Cup, into World Cup winners. Oh, it's a miracle. So that's what he was employed to do, and he did it. And we had some really fun days watching them uh, with him as a test coach as well. But his, his answer to everything seemed to be, hit it further, be more aggressive. Um, and England became a very reckless side. I mean, I think they were bowled out three times under 90 in a year. I saw them, I think, lose 10 wickets in a session. I want to say four times in a test session. That's, that's ridiculous. I mean, that just should not happen. And I think I saw it happen four times, including to Ireland. Anyway, uh, Chris Silverwood came in uh, in New Zealand for that tour and said, look, we need big first innings runs. Doesn't matter how many you get. No, sorry, it doesn't matter how long it takes. It's about how many you get. And they picked different batsmen accordingly. They brought in Dom Sibley, who is... Um, uh, very much an unsung hero, I think, in this England side. And they took a different approach. They, they're playing the percentages much, much more. And I think they're a much better side because of it. Um, but it sounds terribly obvious, doesn't it? Big first in runs. Now, I, I mean, I'm not going to get these stats right off the top of my head, but I think in the 14 tests since, they would have got 400 in the first inning seven times. I think that's right. And I think they didn't manage it at all in Trevor's last, I want to say, 22, maybe 24 tests. So, I mean, that, that those are pretty stark figures, aren't they? Um, to go, you know, basically two years without scoring 400 mm. in the first innings and then to do it basically every other test. Well, there's a pretty obvious difference there, isn't it? And it's because the messages became different and the selections became different. And the key one, if you, if you want a, a simple way of thinking about this England team, under Trevor, they picked... Jason Roy to open the batting in the ashes. And under Chris Silverwood, they're picking Dom Sibley. And that pretty much tells you the difference between the sides. Mm, that's a staggering contrast, and especially with the captain like has been rude. So yeah, that, that's incredible. That that kind of now, yeah, so he's taken a while. <coughs> sorry. <coughs> he's taken a while to change his style, I think. But we all know that he's been underperforming. By, by those very high standards. Uh, and I think going back to number four and allowing himself more time to both prepare and to build an innings has helped him unlock his ability. You've always got to be a bit careful when people compare the records of these guys. Um, if, if Vera or Kane or Steve Smith played the home games in England on the pitches that England have been played on, you can guarantee their averages have come down a fair bit too, eh? So, uh, you do have to be very, very careful with stats, but it's fair to say his 2020 year was very disappointed by his high standards. But look, he looks back to his best now and he has changed his technique a bit. He's definitely going back and across, which he wasn't doing. Again, these things sound ludicrously simple, don't they? Um, but I'm not sure that in the previous regime they were getting a lot of technical coaching and I think they're getting a wee bit more now. Hmm. All right. So, uh, again, one more question, because my majority of the listening base is Indian. So about Rohit Sharma, no one has, not no one, I would say, just along, he's polar opposite of Pajara. He pol polarizes a conversation between Indian fans, between Mumbai fans. Again, uh, his name is doing the circles. Uh, 
do you see him as a long-term opening uh, incumbent opener for India? Because uh, there is no shortage of depth there with Mayank Agarwal waiting in the wings. Then there's a certain KL Rahul who's trying to find his way back. <laughs> so your thoughts on Rohit Sharma? I know he just failed in one uh, in these two innings. He looked really good in Australia, but that's how the Indian fan conversation changes. It's just like the New England weather. It changes very uh, fast. <laughs> um, it's difficult for me to give you a really informed answer, I'm afraid, because I, I'm not sure what else is out there. All I would say is that I thought Gill looks uh, an extravagant talent. And I know this is strong words, and I probably shouldn't say it, but I, I'm not saying he's going to be as good as this, yeah? But when I saw him batting the other day, I was trying to think the last time I'd seen someone new, really, quite newish, hit the ball that well, and it was Brian Lara. I mean, this, this is a, that's a strong comparison, yeah? I thought he looks exceptional. Now, Rowett is... I could, you know, I mean, he could have a career a bit like Saywag, I think. I think he could, which is an extraordinary career, yeah? If you end up averaging <laughs> 50 in Test cricket. Um, I would be concerned how he played the moving ball. Uh, and that's a, a substantial issue. But if he opens in India and Australia, how often is he going to have to play the moving ball? Not massively, you know, not massively. So he's an extremely dangerous player, but he gives you a chance. I, I, I wonder if that's a bit of an issue with this India side that there's, there seems to be a bit of hubris about some of the batting. They, they don't just want to score runs. They seem to want to score them at a pace, at a style, which doesn't necessarily always give them the best chance. And Pujara, who is obviously very good, he's never actually corrected that fault for the one that nips back a bit, has he? I mean, how many times have you seen him bowl between bat and pad? For a very, very good player, I'm a bit surprised that that's still a fault. Um, and so I always think that he's a bit flattered by comparisons to Dravid. I don't think he's in. I don't think he's as good as Dravid by 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 distance, to be honest. And if of all the bats that I've ever seen, uh, Dravid's probably the one I would have bat for my life if it came to it. But um, yeah, that's uh, uh, in terms of yeah, I'll, I'll row it. Uh, does he have? Does he have the inclination to work on that? I mean, even the one where he nicked off to Jofra, nice bowling though it was, he did fiddle at it a little bit, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, that's that's more of a tendency he has. Yeah, it wasn't. A, yeah, uh, and 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 you know, if he goes to play well, which I'm sure he will, in England in the next year, he, he will have five tests there. And I think he's going to struggle, to be honest. The, the ball in England is doing loads at the moment. They're playing on pretty green wickets. They're obviously playing with the Duke's ball. He'll be tested as an opener, mm. but it might be the making of him. I mean, it's not like he's short of talent. There, there's a lot there. Um, yeah, and it, it, so whether he's the right man for the job, it's a bit hard for me to say. I mean, obviously in that game in Chennai, um, in 2016, there are all sorts of people scoring runs we've never really seen again, or you know, from an England perspective. Uh, so whether Roll or Nair could, you know, do a job, I don't know. I, it, it's it's impossible to say with the amount that you, I see of these people. But um, I thought Gill looked a, a really, really special talent uh, and dauntingly good at times. And actually, I might say the same about Pant. You know, everyone saw him 
uh, murder Leach for a bit. That's okay. It could have gone either way, really. There were a couple that just went over the fielder. Lord, I thought he played the seam as well. And no one really mentioned that. I mean, he, he eased one off the back foot off both Joffre and Jimmy Anderson. It was just utter perfection. Absolutely fantastic. But was it in the second innings? He was out to a cutter. Uh, Jimmy, yeah, it was, wasn't it? Jimmy Anderson bowled it in a little cutter and he's pushing at the ball and, and he just didn't need to do that. And it's the same thing again. These guys could be so much better if they gave themselves a bit more of a chance. I mean, there's nothing that guy won't be able to do, I reckon. The, the potential is vast. Hmm. But, you know, even, even Lewis Hamilton slows down for corners. There are just times you've got to respect the game a little bit. Brian Lara was fantastic, at, actually, at times. He'd been very, very patient, played with his bat and pad absolutely together. He was so hungry. Uh, I wonder sometimes whether modern batsmen are as hungry as they should be. And that's one of the big differences with Joe Root in these last few weeks. It's just he's hungrier than he used to be. No, that's not true. That's a simplification. There's some technical stuff. A lot of it is that he's prepared to prepared to play the percentages and keep them much lower all the time. So he'll hit the ball on the ground. He'll wait for the ball. He'll turn it around the corner. And with Pantil, someone, you, you get the impression he's always trying to destroy the bowler. Uh, you know, I think he sells himself a wee bit short by that because I think he could be really, really special. Hmm. No, I agree with a lot of things that you said, and I'll be out of my depth if I disagree. But I think with Pant... In my humble opinion, he got beaten there and uh, he's shown the temperament. Of course, he, he has his own Sehwag type style because that's how his method is built on. And I'm pretty convinced. I think that's just an anomaly. While Pajara, I think you make an excellent point. He's no Dravid and some of his dismissals are very similar. I wish I had more time to dive into that, but I want to bring on, you know, <laughs> a couple other questions here before I have, uh, before I let you go. So the red ball future of English cricket since the 2015 World Cup, it's it's change. I mean, they still value the ashes, but it's pretty clear the modernization roadmap has very tight calendars and the white ball priority just, it's very obvious for anyone. So with the English weather, smart window to play actual cricket, like, like Boston, uh, how, how safe is the oldest format right now? Uh, and can we see like a decent bench? Because uh, like most countries, international cricketers don't play domestic seasons. Kohli hasn't played a Ranji game in so long, but India has a very good red ball bench. So are you concerned about the English bench? Or is there a reason to be concerned? Uh, pardon my ignorance. It's a really good question. And it's, um, <clears throat> yeah, it, it deserves probably a better answer than I'm going to be able to give you. Uh, I am concerned by the ECB's um, milking of the system, yeah, in that they have, put a white ball window right in the middle of the English domestic season. Uh, and I don't care that it's the 100. I'm, I'm not particularly anti the 100 as much. I mean, in that 100 ball cricket, I couldn't give a yep. damn. It would still be cricket. It'll be fine. Um, my issue is more of that. I don't like the white ball window. And I don't like the fact that you're cutting the counties because it would appear to me that these new identities will eventually replace the counties, or there is a danger of that. And while many people think that would be a good thing, I think it would be a very, very bad thing. And I'll explain that briefly. Um, I, I think it is a myth, one of the great myths, 
that the amount of talent in society is finite. You know, people say, oh, there's not enough talent to go around. Well, you find talent if you invest in it. You find talent if you provide opportunities for people to see the game and play the game. And what we've done in England in the last few years is put the game behind a paywall and only play it at private schools. So it's only relevant to about 8 10% of the population, something like that. It really is that small um, because those are the only people who even know it. You could be a kid growing up in Britain now and never see a game of cricket. That's no exaggeration. You, you could have, because it hasn't been, it wasn't on TV at all from 2005 until a bit at the end of last summer. So um, I, I'm very worried that the game will diminish because of mm. these new identities. Now, it's interesting, though, Test cricket still sells really, really well in England. You know, uh, in a COVID-free summer, if this summer were COVID-free, um, I think every test would be a sellout. And that's seven or eight tests that will be played in England this summer. So well, the ones involving England would certainly be a sellout. Now, that, that's pretty great. Now, I know the grounds aren't as big as the grounds in India or Australia, but, you know, you'll get 25, 30,000 people spending well over £100. So spending probably 200 US a day to watch cricket. Um, let's not take that for granted. Mm. So there's still a lot of interest. There's still a lot of passion about England Test cricket. And I know that they divide opinion, but I'm a big fan of the Barmy Army and the travelling supporters because <laughs> they support the game financially massively. And I've seen so many empty cricket grounds overseas. But when England play, they're never empty. Mm. And I think they deserve a lot of credit for that. They love cricket enough to spend their absolute fortune to give their whole holiday entitlement to go in to watch the team. And, you know, generally... I think that's brilliant. There might be one or two quibbles about one or two things they do sometimes, but they're details. So um, there is a love there. And I think that the English authorities are risking it <clears throat> because they're pushing the uh, English domestic first-class competition ever more into the margins of the season, which means it doesn't necessarily produce uh, spinners in particular, because they've become almost obsolete. Uh, and that ge genuinely, they have become almost obsolete in English cricket. And, and even fast bowlers, because if you're a decent, skillful, medium-fast seamer, you hit the seam enough, you're going to get help on the wickets they're playing on. And so that's all you need. So there's not such an incentive to invest in young fast bowlers who might go for six and over and cost you a game or two in the county championship. So I, I think... Um, We've got to be really careful about uh, continuing to invest in the sport. But the reason I'm optimistic, actually, I probably haven't sounded it. Uh, the reason I'm optimistic is it's a bloody great game still. Uh, and I think that if we get people to see it, there's no reason why they won't fall in love with it. And that's fine. It might be T20 or it might even be the 100 that they fall in love with. It. That might be their, their gateway drug. That's absolutely fine. It was, it was the same with me. It was Sunday league cricket, uh, mm. watching TV. It was 40 over a side. That was the equivalent of T20 in the day. And um, I watched that, fell in love with it, then started to get hooked on test matches. You know, that still can happen. So I'm, I'm, when you ask, am I worried about long-form cricket in England? I'm sort of really optimistic because I think it's as entertaining as it's ever been. You know, we don't see draws anymore, do we? Um, we see the game generally played in quite a positive style. 
So there's a lot to enjoy. Um, the only thing is, I'm just worried that the uh, English authorities will dilute their own product because they're so worried about where the next big payday is coming from that they've taken for granted this wonderful um, heritage that they have with the Red Bull game and they are in danger of squandering it a little bit. Uh, but I hope that this turns out to be a blip in the, in the history mm. of domestic cricket and that they will at some stage start cherishing the Red Bull thing again. Um, I, I say again, the players wanted to have a white ball window. This is probably really geeky and far more detailed than anyone needs. But the players wanted a white ball window because they thought it made them better at white ball cricket. Well, you've got to respect that. That's, that matters. I, we, we heard that and, and we changed the system. But I think, you, I think the players are going to have to adapt, I'm afraid. And I think if we want to have a good test team regularly, they're going to have to play test cricket the whole way through the summer. And that means getting rid of the white ball window and, say, playing a, a white ball game on a Friday night and playing first-class cricket from Monday to Thursday. It's not ideal, but um, I don't know anyone's job who is. Could, could we, again, what I'm going to say is sound ridiculous because it's something, as a young boy, I asked my dad, uh, why doesn't Richards play Ranji? And the response I got, I don't want to you know, <laughs> say on the podcast, but do you think, is it a, in a, some weird universe is possible that how county cricket was maybe considering the weather demands and the climate you know, limitations, maybe English players, Australian players, again, it is, has to come through BCCI. Could we see them playing in Ranji or some of the Indian domestic competition? Are we far from that kind of a, <laughs> well, yeah, a, arrangement? Yeah. Well, I mean, it has happened, hasn't it? Uh, I, I, I think I'm right in saying the most recent would have been Vikram Solanke, who's now head coach at Surrey, who, who I, I'm pretty confident played in the Ranji. So, um, it has happened. And I think as well, um, yeah, look, it, it's happened. There are a couple of things. One, players can make more money doing other things, basically playing in franchise cricket. And two, would the um, BCCI be prepared to allow English players to gain potentially an advantage and also um, take a place which might be otherwise taken by a young Indian player? I don't know how much hunger there is to do this among young English qualified players. I don't know. I mean, it's not something that's talked about a lot. They love to go to Australia and play uh, grade cricket. A lot of them go to New Zealand. Um, it, it might be that they, they would find it culturally more difficult. I don't know. But to me, it seems like a great idea. Um, it, everything's become a bit more difficult because of Brexit. My, my own theory is that uh, there will be new deals. Instead of Colpac, we might have a deal between England and India. That doesn't seem at all impossible, does it? Which would provide work opportunities for Indian nationals, and that would include cricketers. But, you know, the BCCI would probably have to decide whether they wanted that to happen. Uh, we've seen a few Indian players play county cricket again in recent years, haven't we? Um, Ravi Ashwin, obviously, and um, um, Virat. Uh, obviously signed to play for Surrey, but it fell through for one reason or another. Listen, I think it would be really good, and I think it would be good to go and play in places like the Caribbean as well. Um, but, you know, you're juggling a lot of different things there, financially, whether it's... Um, and whether the authorities would allow it, yeah. 
Yeah, it's a far-fetched reality. Thanks for entertaining that. So I don't, well, I don't think it's, I don't think it's that far-fetched. I mean, as I say, it has happened. In, when did Vikram do it? Uh, probably eight years ago, maybe ten years ago, something like that. I think he was the last. Um, and I think one or two have done it in Sri Lanka as well. I think that. Um, I think Chopra may have played in Sri Lanka. Did Nick Compton play in Sri Lanka? Some domestic cricket. So, uh, yeah, it, it's just if there's a will to do these things, it, it can usually be done. I mean, loads of people have gone to play in Southern Africa and South Africa or um, in Zimbabwe. But as I say, things have got a bit more complicated right now because of Brexit, which has obviously stopped the coal pack flow into England. But I, I, as I say, I think there'll be other deals. And I think there are probably opportunities to be made there. I, I'm absolutely sure that the UK sees India as a, a, a key market. And that will create opportunities for everybody, including cricketers. Absolutely. So let's wrap this up and plug in your article. Again, doesn't need a plug in for my small podcast, but I'll mention the show notes. IPL, you know, it's such a necessity. People complain about it. So what's a balancing act here? I mean, uh, how has English cricket embraced it? Are there like conversations where people uh, in control are still not happy of that window? What is the reality? I mean, complaining about it's not going to help, you said clearly. So <coughs> yeah. what, what well, are the pros and cons? And do the pros outnumber the cons? Well, you might as well conclude that they do <laughs> because there's not a lot you can do about it. So I think what they've decided is let's embrace the positives because what where, where's the mileage and the alternative there are some inconveniences and we should never be afraid to tell the truth there are some irritations and inconveniences about the ipl look it's played during the english season the english domestic season that is an inconvenience it means that when english players go and learn more there and earn a fortune and of course that's that's not a bad thing we should be uh, frank and upfront about that. Players deserve to make as much money as they can during their careers, as long as it's upfront and honest. And good luck to them. I've got no problem with that at all. But let's not pretend that money's not an important factor here. Not, let, let's not pretend they're just going there to learn how to play on different surfaces and against different players. They can benefit from all those things as well. But but the money is a massive factor. Uh, and of course it should be because they've only got a short career and how many years do you get in the IPL? You might, you might only get one. So um, there's no harm in that. But it does come during the English season. and That does mean that it probably dilutes the English domestic product. And that, you could argue, doesn't prepare the England team as well as might be the case. Uh, equally, England used to play two tests in May. They can't do that anymore. Because well, they could, but you know, uh, it would be uh, quite tricky because the best players are away, it would be of diminishing value to broadcasters. So, you know, we should acknowledge these things, but at the same time, if you look at this year, for example, the T20 World Cup is scheduled to be played in India later in the year. It would be insane not to think that experience playing in India against many of the best T20 players in the world would not be beneficial. And even when England won their very first global limited overs trophy, the 2010 uh, World T20 in the Caribbean, uh, a crucial part of that was the experience that Paul Collingwood in particular had gained in the IPL previously, where he realised that left arm seamers were particularly valuable and, and pretty hard to hit. So he dropped Jimmy Anderson, 
and he brought in Ryan Sidebottom, which at the time was really quite controversial. And it worked a treat. So England have learned loads from the IPL. The players have benefited. They benefit financially, which is great. I'm pleased for them. And they've benefited in terms of experience. But there are some drawbacks, and that's absolutely fine to acknowledge. Uh, but the ECB have basically thought, if we say no to these players, we, we put them in a position where they have to choose between us and them, and we don't know which way that's going to go. So they've decided to embrace all the positive aspects ignore as many of the negatives as possible or try and mitigate against them. Uh, and that's probably a sensible solution. The only other thing I'd say is it's not unheard of for English players to drop out of the IPL. Uh, I think in the last three years, Chris Wokes, Jason Roy and Ben Stokes have all done so for various periods of time. Uh, so it, it's not completely black and white. And it might be after a long time in the bubble, one or two more drop out this time as well but you know the last IPL season they did manage to get families uh there as well so the players were able to spend some time with their families while they're in the bubble I think that's really helpful uh it it there's a a a wider point about the big three nations playing each other a disproportionate amount and I think that's that's something we should probably uh change i'm just just going um bear with me for a second i'll explain what i mean in the last few months we've had an ipl season then india and australia have played each other then india and england have played each other then there's another ipl season then india and england play each other again and then england and australia play each other again so th- they are cornering the prestige market the uh, the high income broadcast market those three countries and they're doing it to the detriment of other nations. And do, do any of us really need to see nine tests in seven or eight months between England and India? Well, I don't think we do. The, the first one's been brilliant, make no mistake. But, you know, England will play New Zealand as well, and that'll be fun. And, you know, India can play Pakistan. That'll be great fun, wouldn't it? So uh, I, I do think we've got to look after and nurture the, the wider games. We'll go back to the point I made about domestic cricket in England. You've got to nurture that if you want to have a good test team. If you want to have a good test uh, championship or a, a good test program worldwide, you have to ensure that the other competitors are in a healthy position. And you can't argue that South African or Sri Lankan cricket is particularly healthy right now. Uh, and I think over the next few years, we'll see the big three, I think, be a little bit more holistic in their approach. I'm very confident that the ECB under the the new chair will be better than any ECB that I've reported on before. I mean, to be fair, it wouldn't be difficult to be an upgrade from Colin Graves or Giles Clark, horrific men. But uh, the current fella, Ian Watmore, is a good guy who understands that morality and long-term economics often go hand in hand. Does that make sense? In that if you're looking after everybody, in the long term, everybody will be better off and that will be good for you. Uh, I think he gets that. I don't think I've ever spoken to any chair previously at the ECB who did. Uh, And again, I don't know that I sound it, but I am actually quite optimistic. (laughs) No, I think this is a a really good response and I'm aligned to this. Hopefully, I mean, I hope, you know, 
we can have you back and maybe talk another podcast about cricket administration, especially comparing the roles of current BCCI to the ECB when they were seen as the guardians of the game. And uh, it's a fair comparison, you know, between the economics and the actual uh, pulse of the game where, you know, all seats on the table should be equal. Financially, they are not. So there's a lot to ponder there, but I think this answer is something really unique. I'll, I'll listen to it while editing again very well, soon. Well, 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 well. I, I mean, um, should they be should they be equal? I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not saying they shouldn't. I'm just saying that that should be part of the debate. But, I mean, you know, Johnny Grave, um, Chief Exec of Cricket West Indies, who I think is terrific, um, came up with a good idea a few years ago. Uh, the problem was that he got Dave Cameron, his president, who is a buffoon of a man, to try and uh, sell the idea to the uh, ICC, and they didn't take him seriously, and why would they? But uh, Johnny's idea, I think, was that bi- home bilateral rights should be shared with the visiting team on a portion of, I think, 20%. So, if Windy's visit India, the home broadcast deal would be split 80-20. Now, straight away, you're, you're changing the landscape massively. The, the, the home country still benefits, as, as I think they should. You know, they still take the lion's share of the money. But you're beginning to distribute your wealth a little bit more fairly. And, and I don't see any joy in beating... I mean, England beat, have now beaten Sri Lanka five times in a row. And, and that's great. And I don't want to take anything away from that because it's a terrific performance. It's a really tough place to play cricket and to win. Um, but I don't think anyone who loves cricket can be enjoying the decline we've seen in that Sri Lankan side in the blink of an eye. I mean, it's been five years or so. They've gone from being exceptionally good with three, four or five great players to being, you know, they're a modest side right now. Uh, and there's not masses amounts of um, of talent coming through that you think's going to change things. I hope that I hope I'm proved wrong. I'm not meaning to have a go at them. I'm actually meaning to say world cricket has to do a bit better uh, because you know we we are the whole game is stronger if the whole game is stronger. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it clearly is. And I, and I would like everyone, at, you know, the BCCI in particular, to to take the longer term view. And not just think of the next TV deal. In my experience, uh, cricket hasn't been ruined by corruption uh, in, in the way that people think it has. It hasn't been just about um, administrators stuffing their pockets with money. As much as it has been administrators having huge egos and loving to see those stroked by the deals they do or the status they gain. I think ego has been a huge problem. Uh, and, and it might be, oh, I'm going off topic here, but it might be a reason why there should be more female administrators because they seem a bit better in that area. No, I think very well said. That could definitely be the concluding part here. Uh, thank you very much for taking out your time during a busy I, I, series. Well, no, no, it's a, it's a pleasure to talk, but I, I, I'm sorry, I hope I haven't been horrifically boring. That, that's my own no, word. No, no, I think, in fact, quite the opposite. And uh, I'm already planting, you know, the next podcast, you know, with you, if uh, that's possible. But uh, Of course, of course. Yeah, the listeners would definitely enjoy. And I think uh, 
this was this was a great exercise talking about the larger landscape of all things english cricket and we did a few plugins about uh, the the current test series so george it was an absolute pleasure i hope to host you back very soon brilliant really nice to talk to you yeah keep in touch 